0: Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Exodus chapter 20 for the last in our series on the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you're happy about that or sad about that or what, but that's what we have this morning. One way or the other, we are going to finish them up with the Tenth Commandment. And the Ten Commandments on the whole come to an end with a command that's broad and foundational in the same way that the first command was. One of the things we talked about under that first command was that uh, it's underneath all the other ones that in order to break any of the commands, you've got to break the first command against having any God before the one true God. And this one, at the very end of the list, is similar. Many of the commands, especially the commands about how we're supposed to love our neighbors, um, are broken only once you've first broken this one, which speaks to the heart. Underneath our failure to love our neighbors as ourselves, underneath sins like adultery and stealing lies a far more subtle and resilient sin called covetousness. Covetousness is about desire. It's an intense desire for what you don't have. But it's not just desire in general. And the Bible celebrates desires. The Bible says we were created to long for certain things. Desires aren't a the problem. They're given. They're a given. They're, they're inevitable. Everybody's got them. It's not that we desire, that's the problem, as if some sort of detachment were the way forward. It's not even how strongly we desire, that's the problem. The Bible celebrates, the Psalms celebrate intense desires. The problem that comes with what we desire, and even more specifically for this morning, whose things we desire. What we desire and, and who they, these things belong to. Covetousness is a desire for something that belongs to somebody else. Wanting to have it for your own instead of them. And as with the other commands, this example, this covetousness that's brought to the surface in the command stands in for a whole category of misplaced desires we deal with every day. And what I want to do this morning in this final sermon in our series on the Ten Commandments is try to focus in on what makes covetousness so destructive, where it attacks us, and how we can fight back. Where covetousness attacks us, where we're vulnerable to it, in other words, what it does when, it, when, it, when it, it's cultivated in our lives, and where we can fight back. All right, I want to begin by reading the text. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read from Exodus chapter 20, picking up in verse 17. This is the Word of the Lord. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. You can be seated. This list of things in this verse, in verse 17, uh, this list of things we're not supposed to covet, it begins with your neighbor's house. I think that certainly includes the sort of walls and roof that your neighbor actually lives under. You shouldn't covet that, but but that more specifically, what that word has to do with is a the household—the things that are contained in your neighbor's life. So you, then, then the list that comes after is just some examples of things that would belong in your neighbor's household. Your neighbor's spouse, for example, your neighbor's servants think luxury items you know this, not everyone in that time would have been able to afford to pay people to help them around the house but uh, to, but 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 some could so don't don't resent don't covet what your neighbor is able to afford in other words don't covet their ox or their donkey list of possessions and in case you're tempted to think that this list here limits your exposure it rounds off with anything that is your neighbor's coveting is a comprehensive no-no don't crave what belongs to somebody else so why? Why is coveting such a big deal? I want to talk about that for a few minutes at three levels. Three levels that help us to see the, the, the destructiveness of covetousness, or as I've put it on the outline, if you're following along in your worship guide, where covetousness attacks us. Three levels where we're hit. Here's the first one. These are going to be in ascending order of importance. Covetousness destroys our happiness in what we have. There's the first place it attacks us. Covetousness destroys our happiness in what we have. That's why it's in the Ten Commandments. That's why it's so important. This is an impact on our own individual lives. God doesn't want this for us. And surely you know what I'm talking about. On our own, if we could live in absolute isolation with exactly what we already have now, in many ways, I bet we'd be content. One writer compares our tendencies to, the, to a kid who gets a new toy for Christmas and is thrilled with the new toy. Because, you know, the day before he didn't have that toy. So it's all plus, right? One day he doesn't have it, now he has it. For a while, that's the headline. Just that he got this toy. Let's say, I don't know, a Game Boy or whatever the current... What's the current version of the game? I'm dating myself here. Circa mid-1990s. So Nintendo Switch or something like that. A handheld... Game system. Let's say he got that. For a while, the headline is, new Switch. This is awesome. Until he goes next door and he sees what his neighbor got for Christmas. PlayStation 4. Virtual reality headgear. A bevy of 20 plus games or what have you. Extra controllers. I don't know. The bells and whistles. Well, now all of a sudden the headline is not the Nintendo Switch that he got. The headline is the PlayStation with virtual reality headgear that he didn't get. Has this gotten any easier for you as you've gotten older? Are you any less likely to to feel this way now than you were when you were a kid? I wonder. Maybe you're happy enough in your job and in the compensation you get for it until you heard what somebody else in the next cubicle over pulls down each month. Maybe you're happy enough in where you live and the kind of stuff that you filled your house with. You actually really enjoy it. Until you get invited over for dinner to somebody else's house and you realize, oh, there's a whole other standard of living right here that I wasn't even aware of. Or maybe you're happy enough with the outfit that you loved when you first got it last year, but it doesn't spark joy anymore when you see what she's wearing. Or you thought you had a great weekend. It was relaxing. You know, you got some takeout and watched a movie. Played some games or something. Felt like a good weekend. Until you see on Instagram that they went to Disney over the weekend. That's how they spent the the, the three-day weekend that they had coming up. You know what I mean. Covetousness is not something anybody enjoys. It only ever hurts. and takes away happiness you might otherwise have in what God has given you. God doesn't want that for us. That's why this command is here. It has a destructive power that hurts the one who's dealing with it. Now moving on a little bit. Uh, that's its effect on us. Just as an individual, it destroys your happiness and what you have. But this is not just a victimless crime. Covetousness not only can destroy your happiness and what you have, it can poison your relationships with others. And I think that's even more to the heart of what this command is aiming at. It highlights your neighbor. Don't don't forget your neighbor. Your neighbor is at stake in what you want. It's a very short step to move from wanting what others have, resenting the fact that you don't have it, and then resenting the fact that they do have it. Coveting undermines relationships because it isn't just the not having something that hurts you. It's their having it that hurts you. You one, one, One possibility is that the pain over not having something you wish you had gets lessened a little bit when somebody you love does have it. You could be happy for them and that makes you feel a little bit better about what you don't have. That's a theoretical possibility. But much more likely, I think, at least by nature, uh, uh, us being us, their having what you don't have makes it worse, not better. It's one reason our covenant, our church covenant, that our members prom- make, a set of promises our members make to one another. One of the, one of the lines in our church covenant is, is the promise that we will rejoice and mourn together. We have to promise that and plan for that because it isn't natural. Just the opposite is natural. When someone else is rejoicing over something we haven't experienced, we mourn. When someone else is mourning over something we've been able to dodge, sometimes, at least secretly, there's a hint of relief, maybe at best even a kind of joy that we haven't experienced what they have. That's us by nature in our selfishness and self-absorption. And so we promise we're going to rejoice when our friends rejoice, even if it's something we don't have. Their joy makes us happy. We'll mourn when our friends mourn. Their mourning affects us. That's our promise. We have to promise it because by nature we know that's not the way it goes. James 4 describes what happens by nature. James 4, 1 and 2 talks about quarreling, about what happens to relationships when desires run wild. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you, James asks. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Coveting poisons relationships, James is saying. I wonder, does does drama tend to follow you in your relationships? Do you have a hard time keeping peace with others? One thing you ought to at least consider, based on what James has written there, is that covetousness could be at the root of those problems? Coven- covetousness could be poisoning your relationships, making you approach others as a victim or as an aggrieved person, with expectations of them that you haven't identified and that they won't be able to meet. It's possible that that could be going on. Point is that envy is never envy and covetousness. They're never simply material. They're always personal. It's not just about the stuff, it's about the people involved with the stuff. And of course, that can lead to outright hurting somebody, like James is talking about, fighting. It can, it can lead you to try to sabotage or take away what they have. It could do that. But short of that, short of something that overt and much more likely, covetousness can make you shrink back from time with somebody when being around them brings up the pain of what they have that you don't. It can make you not want to see them. It can destroy your ability to empathize with them. Because if if they're experiencing pain or if they're struggling, you can think, How can you complain about that when you have fill in the blank? Where what they have is something you can't get past to see what they don't have, to see their own struggles and to enter in with them. Covetousness, I mean, these are just examples, friends. Covetousness can poison your relationships with others in all sorts of ways, including the ones I've mentioned and, and far more. Covetousness is no victimless crime. It's poison to our relationships with each other. There's one more layer, one more place at, at which covetousness attacks us. One more reason that it's such a big deal. Covetousness number three denies the goodness of God. Covetousness always denies the goodness of God. And this is the deepest problem. It's the one with the most serious consequences. The Bible tells us that we, all of us, each one of us, we were made for a relationship of trust and dependence on God. That's why He made us, was to depend on Him and to see through His provision how good He really is. We have not been told by the Bible that we will always see or understand what He does and why He does it. We've told, we're told instead that we can trust Him. We can trust Him to be for us, to be good, to choose wisely in what He brings into our lives. And at the core of our sin against God, when we sin against Him, is always a rejection of this kind of trust. The trust we were made to enjoy, the peace that we were supposed to know in Him is always rejected when we sin. Because when we sin, what we say every single time is that we know what's best for us. Every time we covet, just to choose the sin that's in front of us today, every time we covet, we exchange something of the peace and the rest that comes from trusting Him as our Father. We exchange that peace and rest for our own definition of what sort of life would optimize what we get to enjoy. In other words, what we say is, His providence got it wrong. And what he assigned to me as opposed to what he assigned to them, he messed up. There's no rest there, friends. When you think that you've got to be quality control in your own life. When you think that you've got to be quality control on God's decisions about what he's given to you in your life. You can't rest. When we say his providence got it wrong and that our happiness depends on our vision of what's good... We'll spend our whole lives trying to make that vision a reality and we won't ever get there. The problem goes even deeper. Let me push this further. On covetousness attacking us by denying the goodness of God. Let me push this even further and put this a little more in context of our of our series on Exodus and all these commands. Are put here after God has already delivered Israel out of Egypt and proven through His love for them that He's good and trustworthy. That he'll always help them, He'll always give them what they need. That's what He's been teaching them. What we've been saying about these commands ever since the beginning of the series is that all of them hinge on the first command No other gods before me. You only break the other ones after you first decide, no, that's not true, something else is more worthy of trust and affection than God. When we covet, we don't merely doubt the wisdom of God's providence. We deny the goodness of His friendship. That's what happens every time we covet. Because what we're saying is that having Him at the center of our lives isn't enough to make us happy. Isn't enough to to be content. Where I enjoy Him at all, the implication is that wherever I do enjoy Him, it's as a means to some other end. As the giver of gifts that I want more. The things that my heart really is set on. Where in Exodus, the goal all along from the very beginning has been God's people enjoying God's presence. When, they, when, when, when God sends Moses back into Egypt and he sends him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. He tells them, let them go so they can come to me. So they can worship me at my mountain. The point was Israel being with God and enjoying his presence uniquely as his people. It's because God knows that it's in His presence that they're going to find satisfaction. Only there, only there do you get to have true freedom. So now they have it. Now they're at the mountain. They're worshiping God. He's right there. Living among them. So why covet? That's where the command comes from. If you really have God in your midst, why would you covet what someone else has? Only if God's not good enough. Is that simple. That's why Paul, writing much later, in Colossians chapter 3, describes covetousness as idolatry. That's what he says. Covetousness, and then he says, which is idolatry? Always. When we covet, we say God's not good enough. Not as good as the thing that we really want. And that's why Paul, in another letter to Ephesians, places covetousness on the list of sins that bring God's judgment against us. It's a serious thing to say to God, you're not enough. It's always a betrayal of Him. And what you should know today, friends, especially if you feel through thinking, reflecting on this command and its effect in your life, if you're feeling a growing weight of conviction, And you know yourself to be given to coveting what other people have. And you're seeing now how offensive that is, not just to other people, but to the God who made you and who has given you every breath that you've taken this morning. If you're feeling the weight of that, then what you need to know is the great news of the gospel. What the gospel tells us is that, yeah, it is this big of a deal. Coveting is this big of a deal and always brings God's judgment. But... In his son, Jesus, God has come to people who are dissatisfied, who are broken, who are let down by what they thought would fill them up, only to to realize it wasn't what they thought it would be. People who got where they are in life by implicitly saying he's not enough for them. God, in his son, Jesus, has come to those people, to you and to me, to give them even more of himself. He responds to our rejection of his goodness by giving more of himself. When Jesus talked about himself and what he had come to do in John's gospel, John chapter 4, he meets this woman at the well, a woman that he knows has been from one husband to another and that it, it has just been searching for something fulfilling she's never been able to grab hold of. And he tells her, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd have asked me for living water and I'd have given it to you. The kind of living water that once you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Two chapters later in John 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with with just a little bit of food. He's filled their bellies with food that he's made out of nothing. And and here they are again hungry. They come back to him and he tells them, you're just here because you want more food. I want to give you bread that you can eat and never die. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, will never be thirsty. What's Jesus getting at? He's getting at the purpose for his coming, to lay down his life for his friends so that they could know the goodness of God's presence in their lives forever, so that desires that have never been filled by anything that they've ever coveted could finally be fulfilled. The gospel offered to you this morning is that you can know this satisfaction, not because you deserve it, not because you can afford it, but because Jesus has come to give it to you. And we'd love to talk to you more about what that means and how you can take advantage of it this morning. In the meantime, I want, to talk, I want to talk about the reality here. The reality is that even when we've experienced the promises that Jesus has made to us, promises of satisfaction that is full and free and complete and lasting forever, even after we've come to Him for the forgiveness that His, that his Death makes possible for us. And even while we work to build our relationship with Him so that we know Him more and more, even during all of that, for the rest of our lives, or until Jesus comes again, we are going to covet what other people have. This command tells us not to covet what others have. Instead, on the positive flip side, be content with what you have, what God has given you. And that's easier said than done for all of us. The battle against covetousness is going to be a daily battle, and it will be. So as the song puts it, the ransom church of God is saved to sin no more. That's not today. So what do we do today? We've talked about where covetousness attacks us, the levels at which it hurts our lives, and our relationships with God and others. I want to talk with the rest of the time we have together this morning about how we can fight back. Covetousness is attacking us. How can we fight back? I want to give you three themes. Three themes that come from the broader scope of what the Bible teaches on this topic, but that are built in to this command that God has given to us in Exodus 20. Here's the first theme. How can we fight back against covetousness? We can fight back, first of all, with wisdom. We can fight back with wisdom. In the Bible, wisdom is a kind of literature. It's celebrated as a way to a good life. It's an instinct for how to live well in the world as it is. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, with taking Him seriously, understanding who He is and what He's done and what He's said about what He's done to us. It starts with taking Him seriously in His Word. But then from there, it brings a new way of relating to the world. A new way of observing and interpreting what we're experiencing. Seeing things that he hasn't even told us about yet in light of what he has told us. It's a new operating system, if you will, for making our way through the world. And wisdom gets cultivated over time by paying attention to the way the world works. Knowing what God has said about himself and then paying careful attention to what's happening around us. Now, here's how you can fight back against covetousness with wisdom. It starts by paying really close attention to what happens to the sorts of material things that we tend to covet. Careful observation of the world, how it works, what's true about it, will show us that we vastly overestimate the value of material things that absolutely, without fail, in every case, do not last. In other words, coveting, friends, is fueled by foolishness. We use the Bible's definition of that term. Our coveting of what others have is fueled by foolishness that treats those things as if they're more substantial or longer lasting than they actually are. A foolish regard for, what, for the significance of what we can see. Here's what wisdom would tell us. Here's what wisdom would speak, how wisdom would speak back to that foolishness that we're tempted to. It would tell us, that what you're coveting, if you got it, would not make you happy. Could not make you happy. It's not that it might not, but, but it will not, because it could not make you happy. The Bible's full of examples that point us this way. Here's just one example. In the life of King David, so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you could read about David at the height of his power, at the peak of his abilities, his wealth beyond what it had ever been, flourishing, famous, Beloved by all, he had everything. And he looks on a woman, bathing, and wants her. Had to have her. Did have her. And then murdered her husband. This happened to David when he had everything. What that tells you is that if you got what you're coveting right now, you would still want more. Just like David did. This isn't hypothetical. Uh, A few years ago, a book came out called The Progress Paradox. I've mentioned it before because I think it's so relevant for understanding ourselves and what we want and why we're not happy. The Progress Paradox. How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse by a guy named Greg Easterbrook. It's a book that looks at all sorts of different quality of life issues and shows that on most counts, uh, at least the counts that he is that he's evaluating, life has improved dramatically over the last 50 years, much less the last 100 years, and not just for the uber-rich, but for the majority of people living in America. He's talking about America. He looks at things like the size of living quarters, about home ownership, air conditioning. 95% of Americans have central heat, according to his stats, which are a little dated now, compared to 15% two generations before access to health care, the ability of health care to fight disease, work hours have decreased, leisure hours have increased, work conditions have improved, disposable income for leisure vacations. Did you know that in 2001 there was $25 billion spent on recreational watercraft in America? That's a lot of money on boats. But all this time, when all these metrics have gone up, Happiness, he says, hasn't grown. In fact, this is a quote from the book, clinical depression, diagnosed clinical depression, has been rising in eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. Ten times what it was 50 years ago. I think what we're, just, what we're living through, what we're experiencing as a society is what the Bible's wisdom always told us to expect. As the Bible also gives us the testimony associated with David's son, Solomon who had even more than David did, who spent his life doing what he wanted. Basically, no one ever told him no. And at the end of it, looks back on it all in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and says, all of it was vanity and striving after wind, and there is nothing new under the sun. The Bible celebrates wisdom, which is looking at the things that we covet and being honest about how much chance there really ever was that they might make us happy. Use this wisdom to fight against your covetousness. Make an honest assessment about the truth of life under the sun so that you can deconstruct your covetousness and unmask it for the fraud that's built into it always. This will take away some of its power. It will help you. And here's the thing, friends. Every time we covet, what we're saying, implicitly, even if we wouldn't have acknowledged this or been able to put words to this, what we always say is that material things, the kind of things we can see in order to covet them, those things are ultimate. They're ultimate. They define what a good life is. They would make me happy. That's what we always say. Now, let's just imagine if we were right about that. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we're, that we're right, that our covetousness is rooted in reality. That those material things we crave are ultimate. Is that a world you really want to live in? The reality is that's a very bleak picture. Think about it. If material things are ultimate, if they are as crucial to our lives as our coveting makes them out to be, and I want to invite you to zoom out your life 200 years from now I want you to compare your life 200 years from now to the life of the cockroach that lives in your closet up under that bin of used clothes that you haven't given away yet. 200 years from now, on what what basis would you claim, if you're right about the ultimacy of material things in your heart, on what basis is your life any better, any more significant than that cockroach's life? 200 years from now, What will you have that he doesn't? Will you be more wealthy than him? Will you have a nicer place to live? Will you have a more enjoyable sex life? What will you have? Better memories? At best, better memories, but no. Come on, what are we doing? Comparing our lives to what other people have when in 200 years nobody has anything. If what feeds our coveting is actually true, that they think these things matter more than anything else. It's foolishness, in other words. That's what the Bible tells us. Our coveting is rooted there, and we can fight back against it with wisdom. By remembering the truth about all material things. That's helpful. It's a first step. It's not enough. we got to go further. It's okay to fight back with wisdom, and it's really, really helpful to fight back with wisdom, but we need more. Here's another, ar- another, another weapon in our arsenal, another thing we can fight back with. Fight back against our covetousness with gratitude. With gratitude. Uh, this week, I've been reading uh, one of my favorite books on Christian counseling with some other friends here at Trinity. Uh, a, a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Many of you have, have come across this book or used it. Um, there's, a, there's a part in this book where he talks about James 4 that I read from earlier on desires at war within us and how ultimately what we've got to do is, is, is have our hearts change so that they they love what God loves. That until our hearts change, our lives won't change. That behavior comes downstream from our, from our loves. So he's talking about that bigger picture, that bigger theme. He's citing James 4. And one of the things that I noticed this time that was really helpful is where James takes us for repentance from the kinds of warring desires that destroy relationships. James 4 starts with covetousness, this horizontal problem that we've got. Our our quarreling, our fighting, our wishing to have what others have. All of that's happening here horizontally. And when James says what to do about it in chapter 4, instead of starting with some horizontal fixes, he takes us vertical. He starts... Telling us what we should do towards God. Because he knows that for our, for our relationships to improve with one another, we, f- we first have to improve our relationship with him. So he says, submit yourselves to God. Acknowledge that your life is not your own, it's his. Draw near to God, he says, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. In other words, there's a, there's a vivid way of saying Repent. Cleanse your hands, humble yourselves before Him, and He will exalt you. Those are James's solutions. To a horizontal problem, it starts vertically. So, so when it comes to coveting, how can we repent towards God vertically? With gratitude. That's what it would look like. It would look like an intentional and conscious effort to be grateful for the things that God has given us. To notice those things in a deeper and more compelling, pervasive way than we notice the things that He hasn't given us, or the things that he has given to others. Here's a couple of tips. Here's one, one, the way one writer put it. This is just a very practical thing you could do today. If covenant is something you're struggling with a lot right now. Uh, and you're looking for just something you can do. And all that has been said so far seems, seems too high level and abstract. Here's just a really basic thing you could do this afternoon. This is a quote from another writer. If you're having a hard time being content, he writes. Make a list of everything you have that you don't deserve and then make a list of everything you deserve that you don't have. That's pretty good advice. Make a list. I mean, I'm mean, i being serious. Make a list of everything you have that you don't deserve and then a list of everything you deserve that you don't have. And see what happens. Here's another practical tip. I want to encourage you to consider praying Intentionally, carefully, with planning and specificity, praying to God to give thanks to Him for what He's given to other people. When you find yourself coveting, turn that around into prayers of thanksgiving for what God has given to other people. Thank you, God, for giving them this house that they get to live in. It's so beautiful. Spaces space out so well. What a platform for doing hospitality. Thank you for giving them what you've given them. Thank you, God, for their spouse. What a gift that they get to live life with that person. Thank you, God, for the amazing vacation those friends get to enjoy this week while I'm here back at home. Thank you, God, for their disposable income. Thank you for their well-behaved children. Thank you that they won that award this year. I'm just, thank you that, that, that they're the ones who brought that home. Thank you for their wonderful stellar job opportunities all out in front of them for their choosing. Friends, try <laughs> praying like this even before you feel like this, right? You're, you're probably not going to feel like that. If you're, if you're dealing with covenant, covetousness and you need the help fighting to begin with, it's because you don't feel grateful for what God has given to somebody else. But you don't have to feel that way before you start praying that way. So go ahead and start. Pray like this, give thanks for what he's given to others, and make sure, friends, that you end your prayer. Thanking God for what he's given both of you in Jesus. Thanking God that he, at the cost of his own son, has made you his friend, both of you. In a way that that, that all other gifts pale in comparison. And that brings me to the third thing you can do. Fight back with wisdom, fight back with gratitude. And finally, fight back with hope. Fight back with hope. Whatever legitimate temporary joy separates you from your friends and what they have that you don't, it can't compare to what you're promised in Jesus. It can't compare. All of us tend to overestimate the impact of our circumstances tend to overestimate what would make us happy if we had it or what, if true, would mean we couldn't possibly be happy. We tend to overestimate how much we would enjoy blessings and overestimate how, des- how destroyed our lives would be by, th- by things that we don't want. We tend to overplay, in other words, the role of present circumstance. And along with that, we tend to vastly underestimate the importance of hope of a future full of meaning and purpose toward which we're heading. This week I've been reading, finally getting around to reading, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. This is a a classic. I think it sold, like, my copy says it sold 12 million. I don't know when that one was printed, but it sold a lot of copies. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist who survived the Nazi death camps. Um, And as a trained psychiatrist in those death camps, used his circumstances to do his work. To pay attention to the kinds of things that got people through it when they got through it. To focus on the psychological impact of having everything you own taken away from you. Losing all of your things, all of your people, and all of your plans. All of it. Gone. Then what? So he took that training and that interest into the camps where he lived for those years, and evaluated what was it that got some people through it. And his answer was hope. Not only in that word, but always, in some, at some level, hope. One of, the, one of the lines he uses a lot, comes up over and over again, is, is this. He says, that he who knows the why for his existence will be able to bear almost any how. He who knows the why for his existence will be able to bear almost any how. What he meant was that if, as, as long as somebody knew something they were living for on the other side of that camp, if they could keep going, they would get back to her, get back to him. If I can just keep going, I'll be able to take that project back up again. If I could just keep going, I could, you fill in the blank. That those are the ones who were able to make it through. They had some sort of purpose to which their life belonged, even when all that belonged to them was wiped out. You see the difference there? When everything that that belonged to them was gone, they kept going because they belonged to something else, something bigger, something in which their life received its meaning. Now the stakes here are incredibly high. And in this book, he's not going to try to tell you what you ought to hope for, what purpose gives your life meaning. He's going to leave that to you to decide, and you have to be very careful here. Because any purpose that you set for yourself in the realm of the scene, the realm of the transient, is one that will be stripped from you as certainly as those who lived in those camps lost everything. It matters what your purpose is and where your hope comes from. But Viktor Frankl is not wrong. He's on to something that the Bible confirms. That with hope, well, you can live through anything. Here's how Paul celebrates this idea. Second Corinthians chapter four. We do not lose heart, Paul said. Though our outer self, what we see, is wasting away, our inner self, well, that's being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, this is Paul we're talking about, okay? He had been hounded, would literally be killed for his faith. He's in prison as often as not. Shipwrecked, snake-bitten, beaten, stoned, all of that. That was I mean he's got a list in this very letter of all the things that he'd been through. And he says, "light momentary affliction." Well, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to what we go through, to what other people have. All comparison As we look not to the things that are seen, that are covetable, that are transient, but to the things that are unseen. Paul writes in another letter that he learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, I can be content, he says. Philippians chapter 4. How? Where did he find this contentment? Not through detachment but through a new focus for his desires. Chapter 3 in Philippians. Paul lays out all that he used to have hope in. All the things that used to get him out of bed in the morning. Things that made him proud to be who he was. A Jew of Jews. Tribe of Benjamin. Keeper of the law. Pharisee. I had it all. And Paul says in Philippians 3, Now, I count it all as loss. As less than nothing. Why? For the sake of knowing Him and the power of His resurrection. That's why. All that was nothing compared to Him and compared to the hope of His resurrection in my life. Paul learned contentment through hope. And you can too. While you live under the sun, you're going to deal with unmet desires. That's, that's just a given. That's inevitable. Sometimes, to be honest your desires are going to be for things that are good that it would be wonderful to enjoy. And it will be legitimately painful not to enjoy those things. A healthy body, for example. Marriage and parenthood. A holy God honoring sexuality. A peaceful family life. Meaningful friendship with your parents. Meanwhile, while you long for these gifts, other people will be enjoying them. Often in full view. And the Bible tells us that God's providence often works in ways we can't understand with a distribution of gifts that won't always seem just to us. There's no denying that that's true. But what the Bible also puts in front of us And the only power that gives us the strength we need to obey this command against coveting is a new way to think about those unmet desires. When you experience the pain of unmet desires, you could, by God's grace, with His help, channel them towards heaven. Not towards what other people have, As if you having it would make you happy. And not through suppressing them, snuffing them out, but through channeling them towards what has been promised to you, your future in Christ. Your desire isn't a problem. Hunger makes sense when there's no meal on earth that could possibly satisfy you. Hunger isn't the problem. And your hunger doesn't have to poison your life. It could wonderfully focus it instead. If this is where you are, I, wanna, I just want to close with a recommendation and a reading. I want to I recommend that this afternoon you spend some time with Psalm 73. It's a psalm about envy and coveting that ends in hope. Psalm 73 takes the perspective of one who is faithful to God watching the wicked prosper. And while he obeys... While he says no to all the things he's supposed to say no to. While he holds himself back from all the things the wicked feels free to do. He sees the wicked living high on the hog. And it eats him up. The psalmist's journey. From that place where where his coveting had poisoned his relationship to God and others. To the wisdom. The gratitude. And the hope. Of one who knows God for his friend. By the end of the psalm, by, by, by the last stanza of it, here's where the psalmist has gotten and where you could get to by God's grace. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, talking about his envy, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, speaking to God. Nevertheless, Surely by God's grace, I am continually with you. In spite of how I treated you, he's saying, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Who would do that to someone who treated him like a brute? You guide me with your counsel and afterward, here's the hope, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Holy Father, we pray that, the, that, that what this psalmist learned, by your grace, we would learn too. We pray that you protect our lives and our relationships and especially our experience of your friendship from the covetousness we know that on our own we can't resist. We pray for new affections that dominate our hearts, what we see, what we feel, how we experience the world that you've made, and that we would honor you in the way that you deserve to be honored by the way we experience your gifts here and now. We pray ultimately that you would make us a community of people who stir up hope in one another, not envy. That we would see one another as fellow journeyers towards what you have promised us and that all of our hope would be there. And we pray that you would do this work for your glory by your power in Jesus' name. Amen.